Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. Welcome back to the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kinser, and today I'm so excited to bring you an esteemed guest, Dr. Martin Rosen, and he is a 1981 summa cum laude graduate of Life Chiropractic College, and since 1982, before I was born, folks, He has maintained a private practice in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Besides his practice, he's traveled nationally and internationally teaching chiropractic technique, pediatrics, cranial adjusting, chiropractic philosophy, and practice management. And with his wife, Dr. Nancy Watson, they also run the Peak Potential Institute, offering premier educational programs for healthcare professionals. And their most recent book, It's All in the Head, was written to inform and bring awareness of the implications of growth and developmental challenges in the early stages of childhood development. Their book empowers parents with the ability to understand normal developmental milestones and to recognize problems in the earliest stages, allowing them to seek appropriate care before problems become entrenched and create diagnosable disease processes. Gotta say, Love this book way more than the Wonder Weeks. Wonder Weeks is fine. It's totally fine. I I just will say that I love Dr. Rosen's perspective because he understands normal infant development and reflexes and, and neurological issues, and he's just a wealth of information. He shares so much on the interview that I've done with him, so I can't wait for you to listen. And if you're a provider out there, especially a chiropractic provider, the Peak Potential Institute also offers other educational tools, including hands-on and online workshops and seminars, guest lectures, instructional videos, written books and articles, published research papers, um, and one-on-one interviews. So he's really dedicated to giving chiropractors, healthcare providers, and parents a new perspective when it comes to children's health. And as parents of two daughters, Drs. Rosen and Watson have been committed to helping other parents learn from both their personal and professional experiences. Through their combined 80 years of teaching, writing, and clinical experience, they have brought unique insight, motivation, and support to thousands of lay and professional individuals in numerous fields. I have to say, I really just enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Rosen, which you're about to hear his personal experience, the reason why he got into this work. And I think you'll find that chiropractic has gotten a really bad reputation because there's a lot of charlatans out there. And this is true in many different fields, right? I mean, I think we can all sort of think of examples, whether it's, you know, a used car salesperson or it's a you know, someone else, right? We've all had our bad experience of things. And I really am so glad that you get to listen to Dr. Rosen because he shares a perspective of what true chiropractic medicine looks like, of what real clinical practice looks like, and how to appropriately utilize those tools and those modalities to improve breastfeeding for infants and just overall health for infants. So without further ado, Here's my interview and conversation with Dr. Martin Rosen. 
Welcome to the show, Dr. Martin Rosen. I'm so excited that you're here and you know, you have been in clinical practice for 40 years now. Congratulations to you and teaching for 39 of those years. And you've really done a lot with your practice. It's very family oriented. I know you told me your wife was also a chiropractor. She's since retired and now your daughter's a chiropractor. So I'd love for the audience to hear more from you about your experience and everything that you've been doing. Sure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm glad to get to speak to your audience and to speak to you as well. Um, So yes, we're a family-oriented practice. We take care of infants, mothers, fathers, dogs, cats, anything that pretty much has a spine that belongs to a family. That's what we've been doing for the last 40 years. And I also teach with my wife through a company called the Peak Potential Institute, our company. And we teach chiropractors. We specialize in teaching pediatrics. We have a pediatric certificate program that we teach chiropractors, but we also teach adult adjusting protocols, but we focus a lot on um, teaching pediatrics because that's one of the things we feel in the chiropractic education, it's lacking as far as experiencing working with infants and young children. So we felt like we needed to fill this niche. And um, that's what we've been doing for the last 39 and a half years is kind of filling this niche and teaching pediatrics. And it's also such a great population to work with. We have Right now in our office, we have three generations of mother, grandmother, little infant. So we've had four generations. One of them just passed away. So now all our families are three generational. So it's awesome to kind of watch these people grow up and be connected to them through years and years and years. So that's what we do. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. You know, your family caring for families. And Mm -hmm. I just find that so great because clearly this is just what you love doing. And, you know, I think that's really what counts in a lot of ways. Yep. It is. Yeah. I mean, that's how our family, my family lives too. I mean, I have two daughters. I have one that's said as a chiropractor, I have another daughter who lives out in Colorado. And that's how we raise them, you know, take care of themselves, take personal responsibility, got adjusted. Um, you know, we homeschooled them for a while. My wife nursed for a number of years for that. We did a family bed. So we kind of walked our talk. That's kind of how we live our life. So it's really easy to translate that into practice. And it also is helpful to give people, because we've seen all sides of it. We worked with a lot of homeschoolers. We worked with a lot of people, you know, lactation consultants. We lack a lot of midwives, doulas. Um, so it's great to be able to have that experience and share it with other people in our office and to help parents because sometimes it's tough and parents are looking for answers. And, you know, sometimes raising children is a difficult process. Sometimes it's an amazing, beautiful process, but a lot of times it's challenging. So we are there as a, a place for them to get some help as well as not just get the chiropractic care, but at least information as well and support. Mm, Yeah, that is so important. And just because you get through the newborn period doesn't mean you've got the rest of this parenting thing figured out. So, (laughs) Oh, my children are 35 and 40 and I still haven't all figured it out yet. They still bring new challenges and new experiences to us. Oh my gosh. I'm sure that gives me hope with my six and nine-year-old because I for sure don't have it figured out. So yeah. Well, one of the things you mentioned was specifically pediatric and, you know, sometimes in my work with clients and and my team as well, we're recognizing the need for chiropractic care. And sometimes parents aren't as familiar with what that looks like when we're talking about infants and they'll say, oh yeah, I have a chiropractor. I'll just take my baby to him. And I'm like, well, does this person 
specialize in infants and pediatrics. So I would love for you to just chat a little bit more for the listener who might be new to this and and explain why is it important that someone sees a a chiropractor that specializes in pediatrics and then infants as well? And and what are some things they might want to look for when they're looking for someone local to them? So, I mean, chiropractic, just like any other, you know, healthcare field, you know, you wouldn't bring your child to a geriatric cardiologist. You would bring them to, to a pediatrician. Chiropractors who specialize in pediatrics do that because they want to specialize in that and they have special training. So, as I said a little bit earlier, you know, in chiropractic school, though we get a good education and we do a lot of clinic time, we don't get a lot of chances to adjust pediatric patients. I'm not quite sure why the schools are like that. I think probably it's because they're open clinics. Maybe people don't come in there. Maybe it's insurance reasons. Whatever it is, you don't get a lot of pediatric chiropractic adjusting skills when you get out of school. So it's something that you have to take postgraduate or while you're in school. We offer classes also in school, part of the curriculum as electives. So you really is something that you have to be trained in because the pediatric spine the pediatric cranium is very different than the adult spine, the adult cranium, and we don't do the same type of adjusting protocol. So what I learned in school to get out when I got out of school, I mean, one of the reasons I got into pediatrics is I met my wife in chiropractic school. We got married. And then, you know, as what happens often when you fall in love, you know, your eyes take over and you don't really think with your head. And we decided to get pregnant right away. So when she graduated chiropractic school, she was seven and a half months pregnant. And we had this little baby that came out, you know, to uh, a month and a half later, and we realized that we had a chiropractic philosophy and ideology, a healthcare philosophy that we were following and living, but we really didn't have a great skill set to implement it with our little baby. We didn't really know how to do it. So that was what started me on the pediatric trail. I needed to find ways to be able to take care of my daughter, my first daughter, in ways that I thought would be appropriate and help her nervous system develop. And so we also, and within that period of time, we met a lot of people in different birthing communities. We moved up to Massachusetts and we met midwives, doulas, we met nurses, and there were a lot of issues sometimes during the birth process that people didn't know how to deal with, even during the pregnancy. So we were seeing a lot of these kids who were coming out and people were bringing their children to us, you know, because maybe the parent had a difficult birth or maybe the child wasn't able to sleep, wasn't able to nursing or ear infection, a whole gamut of stuff that was coming up and that they really didn't, number one, understand why it was happening. And number two, really have an alternative venue to be able to deal with these issues. And in many cases, if they weren't severe enough, the medical profession would often say, oh, don't worry, your child will outgrow it. And for some people, that was not a comfortable place to be. Um, especially if your child's not sleeping at night, screaming and crying, um, and it takes them nine months to outgrow it. The parents are exhausted by that point in time. So we continually try to add on um, different protocols, different skill sets, doing research, studying, working with other chiropractors that we knew that had been out of practice along the pediatrics to help develop not only our skill set, but develop an entire pediatric program that we could bring to the profession. Mm, yeah, that's, that's incredible. And, and like you said, you, you went to school for this, but you came out of it going, I don't know even how to really right. implement this kind of thing with my own child. And, you know, I think you and I kind of have a similar background there too. Why well, didn't go to school to become a lactation consultant, but right. you know, it's like, you know, the body makes milk and whether you want it to or not, um, you can suppress that if you'd like after birth, but what do I do with that? Just because my body has this function doesn't mean I know how to use it. And so no, a bit of a parallel there because yeah, you don't know what you don't know. And I love that you and your wife went down this path of pursuing that and, 
you know, you mentioned something interesting about, you know, kind of getting involved in this network of midwives and doulas and and birth workers specifically. So, you know, uh, difficult birth was one of those things you had said, and you and I know how that can affect breastfeeding and just the child overall, what are some of those things that you do see as a result of a difficult birth or what types of things happen in birth that create things that someone such as yourself can help with? So this, so number one, when people think of difficult births, of of course, they think of C-section deliveries, forceps deliveries, vacuum deliveries, those kind of things, extremely long labor, um, maybe cords wrapped around the child's neck. Um, heads hitting against the pubic bone, all that stuff that causes an incredible amount of stress on the, not only on the mother during the birth process, but also on the child. So if we take the simple um, statement that structure and function are related, very often when these kids come out because of the amount of stress, especially let's say a C-section um, where there's an incredible amount of stress on the neck because the child's not even getting the contractions to help them push them out or down the um, birth canal, it puts a lot of tension and stress on the spinal cord. C-section deliveries do that, forceps deliveries, vacuum deliveries. And the child's spine is extremely, extremely delicate and it's vulnerable to basically traction forces. You know, we always think of chiropractors as taking care of pinched nerves. Well, that's not the case in the pediatric practice. In the pediatric practice, what we're often looking at is hypermobility in joints and traction. In other words, too much pulling or traction on the joints. And that affects the nerve. It also affects the cranial bones. Um, they did a study a number of years ago in England, and they found that one of the main causes of stress on the infant's spine and cranium was spending too much time in the birth canal, that there's a certain amount of time that seems to be more effective for the child. But if they spend too much time in the birth canal, because the contractions increase tenfold, once a child leaves the uterus and goes down the birth canal, the pressure of the contractions literally increases from 10 millimeters of mercury to hundred millimeters. So tenfold. So any distortion wow. coming down the birth canal, right. And so when these children come out, you know, one of the reasons they do Abcar scores is to get an idea of how stressful the birth was for the baby, right? An Abcar score is basically a, a monitor of, is your baby breathing well? Is their color right? Are they reactive? And so if they come out of the birth canal with a very low Abcar score, that means it was a stressful birth for them. So that's one of those monitors that we look at. The other thing that happens, and you see this often when a kid comes down out of the birth canal, the whole idea of the cranium or the kid, a child's cranium is that it's allowed to almost collapse on itself. It has these giant sutures and you just see when kids come out and have those soft spots, those soft spots are not bone yet because they allow the cranium to contract as the child comes down the birth canal. And what's supposed to happen in the next seven to 10 days is that contraction is supposed to reverse itself and the cranium is supposed to expand again. The reason for that is that in the first year of life, the brain is gonna grow 101%. So it's gonna literally double in size. And the whole idea of a child or an infant's cranium is to allow for that brain to grow. That's why you have those soft spots before the bones start to fuse or become what we call sutures. And all those soft spots stay open for approximately two years. I mean, there's different time frames for different ones. But so we're talking about the first two years of life. So if the baby comes out of the birth canal, or if during development, you see like flat spots on the baby's head, or the baby's head starts to be misshapen, that's telling you that there's some abnormal growth patterns that's going on inside the cranium and can affect not only the brain, but can affect what's called um, the dural soft tissue system. That also affects the palate. And the palate is the thing that is, if that's not functioning correctly, that can affect nursing issues. So think about it this way. If your baby came out 
and the hips were crooked and your baby started to crawl and they crawled crookedly. And then when they stood, they stood in one hip was higher than the other and they were walking funny. You would notice that immediately. You'd go, oh, that's not normal. My baby's hips aren't supposed to be twisted. You know, one leg's not supposed to be shorter or bowed than the other. You notice that. Well, the cranium also protects the nervous system. So it's the same thing. If you look at your child's face and the jaws pulled to one side, right? Or one eye looks a lot smaller than the other, or they can turn their head more easily to one side than the other, or they don't like tummy time. All these things are signs of functional and structural issues that may often need to be addressed. You know, as a lactation consultant, we talk about, or we talk about three things. We talk about the position of the jaw. Does it open and close normally? Is it twisted to one side? The size of the eye sockets, as one side smaller than the other, and the ability for the baby to turn their head equally. If any of those, one of those three things um, is an issue, that can affect how the baby can nurse. For example, very often we see parents come in that the baby can nurse better on the right breast, but has a really difficult time on the left breast and they have to hold them in different positions or the baby just doesn't like that. Well, it could be because the baby's head doesn't turn as easily to one side or they're sucked is actually stronger on one side of their mouth than the other. That's part of what the tongue tie issue can be a part of is if they suck is not strong enough or they can't seal the nipple against the roof of their mouth because they have a tongue tie, that'll affect the way they nurse too. So nursing issues are literally kind of that red light in most cases that there's some kind of issue with the baby that is not happening or is not making that process easily to facilitate. Mm, absolutely. You know, I, I definitely see this a lot and, and, you know, you take a similar approach to what we do, um, here at, at my company, which is, you know, looking at function, right. So, right. and, and how does that structure impact the function? And, you know, I'm not the one to correct the crooked jaw. So I always have to tell families look like, you know, yeah, he is going to nurse better on this breast because, look how his jaw is askew. You know, I can't fix that. I mean, sure, you can massage it all day long, but you got to go see somebody like, you know, Dr. Rosen, because I don't do that. And sometimes families look at me like I have two heads and I'm like, but I mean, let, you know, let's look together, right? You see it, right? And you you feel the impact of this. And, you know, unfortunately, I think one of the questions I get asked, and and I get it, right? We don't, we're protective of our babies. We don't want to do more than we have to, you know? So parents will be like, well, you know, aren't they just going to outgrow it or, you know, they get bigger, it's going to get better. And I'm like, well, I I mean, to me, I, I haven't seen a baby outgrow it yet. They tend to grow into it. Like you said, if they have right. a crooked hip, they crawl crooked. Now they stand crooked. Now they walk crooked and and it just perpetuates. So, I mean, you know, would you say you agree with that? You don't see this just sort of self-resolve. Yeah. That's one of the things that scares me the most is that when people say, oh, it'll just get better. Oh, it'll just go away. So we as individuals are very fault tolerant, which means we can take a lot of abuse and bounce back, basically. Otherwise, we'd all be dead by the time we're three years of age, right? Between the falls, <laughs> right? So I mean, true. Really, right? Yep. But when you have compensatory patterns, so you may adapt to them, but you adapt to a compensatory pattern with a compensation. So what you're saying is they may outgrow some of the functional aspects of it, or you may just get through it, or you may just suck it up. Or like some mothers, I've had mothers who've gone through tears in their eyes because they've given up nursing and they didn't want to because at five months, the child still wasn't nursing. It was a struggle. They couldn't do it. Um, You know, their nipples were really painful. The child wasn't happy and they had to switch to a bottle or the child had eversion issues. And that was also because there was a functional issue with the child that no one told them about. I had a mom come in to me and it was the exact same thing. She was 
four months old. She hadn't been able to nurse for the last two months. And the pediatrician just said, you know, it's not a big deal. You can use a bottle. You know, don't worry about it. It's not going to affect the child. But it was not only affecting the child, it was affecting their relationship. Because the mom literally was, you know, came in with tears. And I said, I can't nurse my baby anymore. And I really want to. Those kind of things. I get scared when people start to accept things that are common as normal. Just because it's happening a lot doesn't mean it's a normal thing that's happening. You know, the American Pediatric Association has accepted basically head distortion. They say 47% of children have some type of head distortion. That's their number, 47%. And they feel like only 10% of those kids need to be treated. And to me, that's very horrific. Those are horrific stats. That's saying half the kids that are born have some kind of head distortions, but we're only going to treat 10% of them because those are the ones that we think are bad enough. And what about all those other kids who create compensatory changes? But as you said, Breastfeeding is not just a functional issue, it's an emotional issue, it's a connection issue. You know, it's about connecting with your child. It's a very special time for parents. And if that becomes a struggle or difficult, or there's resentment or whatever happens around that process, that's going to affect your child. So saying that they'll get through it is almost like saying, well, you know, if you're in an abusive family, that, you know, your child will be fine when they get older, you know, they'll, they'll get through it. I'm not saying that distortions are abusive, I'm just saying that Things are compensations. And if we push through those compensations without correcting them, we just pile another compensation on top of it, which is often what happens when you see kids, like you'll see a little kid who comes in, um, maybe they have some trouble nursing, maybe they end up with, you know, they have some ear infections when they start out because, you know, the sinuses don't drain well. And then the ear infections come to go to allergies and the allergy develops into eczema and then the eczema develops into asthma. And you can see the process breaking down as your immune system has to compensate more and more and more. The same thing with neurological development. You may have a baby that maybe misses some of their milestones and they go, oh, no big deal. They didn't crawl or creep. And then when they're two years old, you know, they're not walking as well. They trip a lot. And then with three years old, you know, they start to not be able to integrate their nervous system. And then by the time they go to school, they're extremely frustrated because now what they've done is compensated so many times when they have to use their brain and more of their brain, it's already in a compensatory state and they can't take in that information. So they act out in school when they get diagnosed with, you know, on the spectrum when they have ADHD or whatever the diagnosis comes in. If you ask a parent, they'll usually tell you, you know, I noticed there was something weird about Johnny when he was like, you know, 12 to 18 months, but the doctor said, ah, he's fine. He'll outgrow it. And the problem is, is that these compensatory patterns tend to show up as we start to develop more and more and use more and more of our nervous system. So I get scared when they say, oh, it's fine. Leave it alone. Let it grow it off. Oh, this is common. So we'll just accept it as normal. Those are the things that really scare me. That's kind of why Dr. Watson and I wrote the book. It's all in the head because we really wrote about, you know, common versus normal. And I think it's really important when every parent wants the best for their child and wants their child to express their full potential and a compensation is not full potential. It's a compensation. Oh, oh my gosh. You're speaking my love language. (laughs) Heck yes. It is true, right? Like when we're looking at this from the subjective standpoint, from, you know, this, this clinical expertise that we have, and we're saying, yeah, but this is not normal for human development, right? This is not normal for infant development. It doesn't mean, you know, your baby is a bad baby or you did something wrong, right? Things happen and, you know, but there is a fix, right? And so I think a lot of times, you know, these pediatricians, they don't have that skill set to be able to fix this other than maybe a helmet on the head or some reflux medications or 
what have you. And, you know, I guess that kind of leads me to a question about this is there's kind of this perception of things, and, and this is your area, not mine, but you talked about the cranial plates and the sutures right. and how those are meant to contract and expand. Now, you know, we want to make sure everything settles back into the right place after birth and all of that. And sometimes parents will say, you know, I'll, I'll notice it sometimes too, or the pediatricians, yeah, the back of the head's a little flat or what have you. And then it seems to get worse over time, but it's not always, it's not always noticeable right after birth. So, so a parent will say, well, it couldn't have been the birth because, you know, his head only started getting flat around three months and I don't leave him to lay down on the floor all the time. Why is this happening? So why does that happen? Okay. So think about this. The easiest way to explain it without using visual prompts, I think is this. So if you think of this tube that's attached all the way to your child's tailbone and yours to coccyx all the way and comes all the way up the spine, comes into the cranium, attaches around the cranium or, or, or attaches to the bones and then actually comes up through the little sutures, those sutures in the skull and attaches around the skull. And this tube attaches all the way down. And its job is to do two, three main things. One, is to maintain a proper tension along the growth plates of the bones so that they grow normally. Two, because the nerves attach it to maintain proper tension in the nervous system. And three, to allow the movement of what's called cerebral spinal fluid, which is basically like your lymphatic and blood supply for your, well, your lymphatic system to your central nervous system. So it has three tubes. So the tube has attachment points. And what happens is sometimes during the birth process or during the kid growing up, you know, first couple of months of life, but often during the birth process, parts of that tube get torqued and they create more tension on one area than another. And what happens is when they create that more tension, you may not notice it right away. But as the child starts to grow, so remember, this tube is now going to have to expand with your child. As this tube starts to grow, if there's a kink, for lack of a better term, in the tube, let's say it attaches to the back of the skull. If there's a too tight to begin with and you didn't notice it as the child hits about three months of age, then and that cranium, the back part of the cranium is going to start to fuse. If that tube's too tight, it's going to have to distort to do that. And so it's like if you have a muscle that's too tight, that's attached, let's say, from your shoulder to your elbow, and that muscle is too tight. And and what happens is as you start to grow or use your arm, the muscle doesn't give, it doesn't let go. Your arm is going to have to distort to deal with that. And that's what happens. It's called the dural meningeal system or the dural tube. And again, it could get traumatized during the birth process or in early childhood, or it can get traumatized anytime, but it can get traumatized during those points and it won't show up until the child starts to basically grow. Or as you t- said a minute ago, as the cranium is supposed to push back or come back into its normal position, if it can't do that because that tube that's attached to the bone is too tight, it'll start to show up. So the trauma <laughs> usually happens earlier, may even right. create some scar tissue. And then as the system has to become basically more flexible and get longer and bigger, that's when those issues will show up. Oh, wow. That is so eloquently explained. And even though it's just a verbal explanation, right. I feel like I could create that imagery in my head. And so, so easy to understand the way you explain that. And it makes sense because, you know, I, I will say like, you know, kind of unrelated, but um, I was in a really serious motor vehicle collision a couple years ago. I, I am still dealing with issues from my right. spine. Um, you know, I have a ruptured disc and what have you. And, you know, there were things that were obvious right away, like whiplash and, and right. some back pain. And then there were things that 
became obvious later on that you're like, oh, well, I didn't realize that the spine would affect, you know, X, Y, and Z and still dealing with some effects, you know, a couple of years later, cause it was, it was very serious. So, you know, I can see what you're saying about babies, right. And, and babies and humans, we are resilient, right? Like you said, we would just, you know, we wouldn't be here if we couldn't handle these stresses. So the body finds a way to adapt. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was a perfect, I mean, we have the term post-concussion syndrome, which basically means you had a concussion and it didn't always resolve. And now you're having, you know, down downstream effects from it. So it's the same thing that happens. These are traumatic incidents that happen. And we all, like I said, kids, if they didn't adapt, if 90% of the stuff that happens to them or 95, even didn't, their body couldn't correct and adapt, we would be dead by age three. I mean, I remember when my little daughter was, she was probably two, maybe two and a half. And this was way back in the day when we had TV, you know, Sony Trinity on these big TVs. I remember she pulled it off the shelf literally on top of her, Ooh. you know? And so, yeah, you see the kids fall, they fall downstairs. I had a mother come in once and she was, she was walking down the stairs with a baby in a nightgown and she stepped on the edge of the nightgown and she started to fly forward and just reflexes, she, she threw the baby, dropped the baby and the baby went flying down the stairs and wow. fell down like eight, you know, eight stairs. So wow. these kind of traumas happen. And if you just let them go without correcting, like you said, you know, in your car accident, if those things, the underlying issues are uncorrected, then the body will develop, you know, scar tissue, compensatory patterns, um, and all those things that we do not want for our children. We want them to start out as healthy as possible. That's also why so many diagnoses of different conditions don't occur till age four and five, because nobody is paying attention to those really first two years. I shouldn't say nobody. Now we're starting to pay more attention, but we're not paying attention to those first two years, seeing the signs. You know, we have things like primal reflexes. They are set to go off at specific times. You know, we have milestones. They are set to go off at specific times, go off and on at specific times or reflexes. If they maintain too long or don't come at the right time, that's a glitch in the nervous system. You know, the same mm-hmm. thing with milestones. Those are developmental. Think about this. You have a set of milestones where you're supposed to be able to pick your head up. That allows the child to lay on their tummy without their face buried in the ground. It also helps them be able to turn over. And then from turning over and rolling from side to side, then you want to be able to get the baby's, you know, muscles strong enough so they can then sit up. And then from sitting up, you want them to be able to creep and crawl so they can develop the nervous system and then they can stand and then eventually walk by themselves. All those things are pre-programmed into the back of the brainstem. So if babies, because we keep our children in a safe environment, if they miss those milestones, they can survive. But think about this, an animal in the wild one of their first milestones when they're born is to be able to get up and walk. Because if they can't, if you're an animal in the desert, in the Serengeti or in the jungle, and you can't get up and walk, you will die. Yeah, and your so, food. That's yeah, it. exactly. Your food. So it's really important that they make that first milestone because they can't be protected from that. Again, in our world, we can protect our infants from the, not having those milestones, but it's really something that is a monitor saying, hey, there's something wrong here. There's a neurological glitch. This is supposed to happen within a certain time frame. And if it's not, if it's not, I may seek help. You know, I was talking to a doula on one of these podcasts a couple of a couple of weeks ago, and she said something which I thought was brilliant. We talk about primal reflexes. And she said for her, she thinks one of the first primal reflexes is for the baby to be able to turn head down in the uterus to, to come out the birth canal. She thinks that's actually a normal reflex. And that kids who don't do that, then there's also already something wrong, you know, given 
barring the fact that maybe the cord is too short or there's placenta previa or something like that going on. But ideally, she thinks it's a reflexibility for the child to be able to feel gravity, know how how to flip, know how to get their head down so they come out the birth canal. Because we see a lot of kids. I just had a new patient coming today whose baby is transverse um, and she's 34 weeks pregnant, 34 weeks along. So we have to do some work to help the baby be able to to turn within the uterus so that she can deliver vaginally because that's what she wants to do. She wants to do, she had a C-section and she wants to do a VBAC. Yeah, yeah. Those are the kind of things that we look at. Right. Yeah. No, there's some signs and clues there along the way. And, and I'm glad we're having this conversation today because I think one of the things that I encounter, especially having a somewhat large social media presence and, and being really active there is there's this idea that you know, depending on who you're speaking to, it's one thing, you know, one-on-one with a patient. It's, it's another thing when you're trying to get this message out on a more public platform and to say, you know, something that's common may not be normal. And and they're like, you're saying, you know, there are set timeframes for these reflexes to initiate, to integrate and and all of these developmental milestones. But then we've gotten into this place in, in society where people say, well, you know, my baby didn't walk till he was 16 months and he's fine. How dare you tell me something is wrong with my child? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not an affront to you. It's not a comment on your parenting. It's not any of that. Right. But what we are saying is biologically, okay. There is something that is expected of our species and whether or not we live in a safe world, you know, where we can protect our babies from harm has no bearing on that. Our DNA doesn't understand that we live in modern homes with air conditioning and clean water. Okay. So all of these things still count and they still matter. And you know, it's, it's an important conversation in my mind, because I think a lot of things are getting neglected because there's pediatricians that are too afraid to tell parents something's wrong. Right. And then parents are too afraid to hear that something's wrong. Right. And exactly. how, do you have, I don't know if you have any answers on that, but my gosh, well, how do we get through to people? So because we don't want to tell them, you know, you're doing well, it wrong. That's not well, it. Well, so one of the answers is simply this. That's exactly why my wife kind of prodded me and her to write the book. It's all in the head because I've written a number of technical manuals. I could teach chiropractors and technique manuals. And we really didn't reach out a lot to the lay population because we're so busy trying to train chiropractors. And we saw exactly what you just said, you know, these kind of issues that people are either feeling affronted or the pediatrician is afraid to tell them, or they just say, oh, my baby's fine. You know, it's you. So we wrote the book to give people kind of a baseline. You know, when should these things happening? So within the first 18 months of life, you should hit all those baselines, all those milestones. That's like you said, you know, we talk about primal brain, midbrain and forebrain. Well, the primal brain, like you said, is a brain that's been around forever and ever and ever. That's our primal brain. That's that's kind of those basic instincts. That's the reflexive brain. That's the brain that protects us. And it's not till we then get to the midbrain where we start to make, you know, emotionally based decisions. And finally, when we hit the forebrain, we make conscious based decisions. But all that stuff that's happening in the midbrain sets the road work and the groundwork for the rest of the brain to work. If you're not getting the proper information into that, that back part of your brain, into that primal brain in the back part of the skull, and it's not processing right, then the rest of the brain will suffer because it's not getting the good, the correct information. So what we try and do with parents, and what we do is we talk to them and we give them charts and we tell them where to look up on the, you know, on the web, that these are the normal milestones that we're looking at. And if your child didn't reach those normal milestones, that doesn't mean you're a bad parent. 
That doesn't mean that's a bad child. That means that we can still help them integrate these milestones. You can still help kids. And I've helped work with kids who are three, four, five years old and help them kind of reprogram their nervous system. I have a great, I have a great case. This, this um, little girl, little baby came in. She was uh, almost 18, 19 months old. And the parents brought her in because she was very difficult um, to take care of. She didn't, she wasn't eat well. She didn't sleep well. She was, had a very aggressive behavior. She just was a very difficult child. Her mom called that. And she said that um, one of the things she also, when we talked about the history is that she never creeped or crawled um, when she was little, you know, in that seven to nine month period of time, she never did that. She had all these other health issues. When she came to our office, we started adjusting her and about, Four weeks into the adjustment program, her mom came in and said, I can't believe it. I went downstairs and she had an older brother who was about four or five years older than her. She goes, I went downstairs and my daughter was crawling around on the floor with her brother. And I said, she goes, yeah, she never crawled before. And now she was crawling. So she was actually resetting her nervous system herself. She was backtracking it and reinstalling basically the groundwork that she had missed. Um, so we see that kind of stuff all the time. So it's about a conversation with parents. It's not about blaming them. Um, it's about pointing out that, you know, these things are not normal and there is something that we can still do about it. That's the other part that's really important is, yeah, your child may be fine. And I don't know what fine means. That's probably one of the worst words in the English language. You know, I'm fine. <laughs> I hate that. You know, when you ask a yep, patient, fine. Hey, you're fine. Yeah. You're fine. That means what? You're horrible. You're terrible. Leave me alone. You know, I mean, right. I mean, a lot of kids, yeah. I know sometimes when I say fine, it's mean, I don't want to talk to you. You know, that's what fine means to me. It's like, I don't want to talk to you. I'm fine. Don't, you know, or if someone insults you. So anyhow, I don't want to go off on fine. But the bottom <laughs> line, is, the bottom line is that means nothing, you know, and again, being fine or being okay is okay if that's way if you want to keep the bar that way. But I feel, and I'm sure you have that experience. It's my experience that parents want to raise that bar for their children, whether it be socioeconomically, emotionally, physically. You know, I, I said to a friend the other day, the CDC, I don't know if you're, I'm sure you're aware of it, but CDC released some new guidelines or supported some new guidelines that actually dumbed down the milestones. It was oh, yeah. Falling. Yeah. And it's terrific. And I said to my friend, I said, you know, we watched the Olympics. I really like it. My daughter was a gymnast. You know, we really, we still watch them. He said, if, if we're watching the Olympics and every year people got slower, performed less, didn't jump as high, couldn't do as much as they, you know, usually did the year before. I said, well, would that be acceptable if athletes kept getting worse and worse and worse? I said, so why is it acceptable that now we're saying, oh, it's okay if our kids don't reach his milestones to later on, or if we skip a few milestones because we decided that, because it's happening, it's okay. I said, no, that's, we would not accept that for athletes. We'd not accept that people in the, you know, in the outside world, why are we accepting those kind of things for our children? So if your children are having these issues and a practitioner is willing to make you aware of this and not make you aware of it as a chastisement, we're making you aware of it because we want to help you increase your child's functional potential. It's really that simple. Yeah, absolutely. And we're advancing in so many other ways um, as a society. Some could argue we're going backwards in some ways too, but, you know, like technologically and all of these other things, right? So why wouldn't we advance in terms of our biology and our, our, our health status, not just longevity number of years we live, but, you know, the way in which we live. And so it's like, well, that's, uh, that's definitely 
definitely odd. And, you know, um, and it kind of ties into, you know, one of the other big topics that I know you work with and and I work with a lot is tongue tie. And there's this, you know, whole controversy that is just completely unnecessary surrounding this, you know, because some doctors just choose not to get on board with things, but, um, and, and, you know, it just hurts the the families. Right. But like, you know, this is, not a new issue. Uh, we can find, no. you know, history of this in, in medical literature and midwives with long pinky nails, slicing tongue ties after birth uh-huh. and what have you. Yeah. So, you know, now we better understand because there's been advances in, in science okay. and medicine and, and all of these things. And people like you have, have tried mm-hmm. to, you know, understand the human body better. Right. And so what is, you know, what are you seeing from a chiropractic perspective with that? So I think there's one thing that you pointed out, which you said really good, you can go through history and see that with tongue times. Also, as we get either more advanced, the word is awareness. And we become start to become aware of different things that we need to look at and look for. So I've been in practice 40 years. And I can honestly say that the first 30 years of my practice, I didn't really even evaluate for tongue tie. It wasn't something that was in my in my consciousness. It wasn't something. So did I miss some of them? Probably, you know, and in the last 10 years, it's become more prevalent. Every child that comes in, I evaluate for it. So do I find it a lot more? Absolutely, but I'm looking for it. You right. know? And, and and what the difference is, though, is that there are a lot of, you know, dentists in, out there who are, you know, just taking courses in laser revision. Because now, you know, when I first started working with tongue tie, it was basically a surgical procedure. It was a knife. It was cutting it. Now it's laser. It's still cutting it, but it's laser. And there are a lot of dentists who are taking seminars and they're just kind of randomly cutting everybody's tongue tie. Again, you talked about it and I talked about it. It's also not just structure, it's function. So are there some cases we divide tongue tie into three areas, posterior, middle, and anterior. And so depending on where the tongue tie is and depending on how the child's functioning and depending if they're making compensatory changes, we recommend or not recommend the tongue tie. I just had a woman actually today whose baby was eight months of age. When she came in, I think I've been taking care of the kid now for maybe two months. And one of the reasons she came in to see me was because the child had nipple aversions. You couldn't nurse the child and the child had really bad sleep patterns. And so the aversion is gone and the sleep patterns are better, but the child's still not nursing as well because she does have a tongue tie and she was afraid to do the revision because she was afraid that the aversion would come back again. Now the child's just starting to eat solids too at nine months of age and she's doing better. But I evaluated today and I said to her, and I know the dentist who's recommending tongue tie and I trust her, I said, I think it's time to do the revision because now it's starting to affect her as she's getting stronger. She can't get the back of her tongue up against the roof of her mouth. And so when she's nursing you, she's sucking in air and that's why she's uncomfortable. So it's really about timing it's about knowing how to evaluate it and it's been knowing when it's effectively done and when it could be a problem. Sometimes posterior tongue ties do not cause any functional issues. And if you cut them, they actually make it harder. And I've seen this happen for the baby to nurse normally because they can't control their tongue as well. So it's really about bringing it to your awareness, evaluating it properly, number one, where the tongue tie is, and number two, how that's affecting the child's function. 
Um, the other yes. thing, that, yeah, because tongue tie. The other thing about tongue tie, especially in anterior tongue tie, which I almost always recommend being cut, not only does it affect function, but it affects the, the growth of the jaw. If there's an anterior tongue tie, the child can't move their jawbone out far and back. And these are the kind of kids when you look at them, they have this deep crease like across their chin, and they have what we call a posterior mandible, or what people used to call a weak chin. The jaw looks really small and pulled back. And that's because yep. they can't push the jar out with the tongue tie, the anterior tongue tie. So yeah, we look at all these signs of how look at the cranial bone growth. We look at the palate, how that's developing. We check the child's suck and see. We have a nine-point test that we look inside the mouth and see if the if the sucking reflex, the gag reflex, and the biting are all equal on these nine particular points. If they're not, when they don't change, then we basically make a decision at that point in time. If the function of the tongue tie is inhibiting that process, then maybe the child needs to have that done. Or if we do the evaluation and the child then over a period of a couple of you know weeks to months of care, those parameters start to change, then we may suggest not doing the tongue tie. But you have to have some kind of baseline. And oh, again, absolutely. it's about Yeah, you have to. Absolutely. Yep. You yeah. have to, you have to have that functional assessment. I mean, that's what, what I, I do. And what my team does is, exactly. you know, our, I love it when someone, you know, <laughs> they send us a little DM, a picture of the baby's lip or the tongue, you know, is this a tie? And I'm like, first of all, I do not diagnose via Instagram right. message. Exactly. Um, but second of all, it's all about the function. You know, I, I looking at a still photograph of a frenulum, not in motion. I have no idea what is going on with that tongue motion, with the mouth, with the jaw, all of that movement. So I love that you mentioned that because you have to have that baseline, right? And then you you do an intervention, right? So you do right. whatever treatment you're, you're right. thinking needs to help this child. Does it improve? Or do exactly. things stay the same or does it minimally improve and we're not getting the results we want? Well, yeah. now we know, right? Now we know. But rushing into, you know, I, th- I think the problem is like, you know, a lot of parents, they they post these photos on a Facebook group somewhere. Someone says, oh, yeah, it's a tongue tie. You go to this dentist, right? Like you said, the dentist releases it. And whether or not, I mean, it could be a tongue tie that that is creating a very functional impact, but you went and got this procedure done and no one's evaluated the function. There's no baseline established and you've never been given any direction on how to improve the the function other than changing the anatomy. Whoa, what are we expecting to happen there? You know, because so many things like the jaw and the palate have been impacted. Exactly. What do you do after the tongue tie revision? If let's say the child is seven or eight months old and you do a revision and okay, they're nursing better, but what about the structural implications that occurred over those seven months and who's correcting that? Like who's correcting the palate, who's correcting the jaw motion, who's helping them retrain their tongue, who's, you know, doing all, who's helping them. You know, a lot of times tongue ties, if they're severe enough, can affect the, the neck. They, they affect the tension in the neck. They affect what's called the fascia and it can cause tightness in the neck. So who's correcting that? Who's correcting the imbalances? Yeah, so that, you're right. All that has to be done. And the other piece around it is that, yeah, you may have a tongue tie, but you also may have a lip tie or a buccal tie. And it's maybe it's what we call like a perfect storm. It's those three things together that are causing the problem. Like if you look at the tongue mm-hmm. and you go, oh, that's not a bad tongue tie, but then, tie, then add in a lip tie and a buccal tie. And now you're getting a child who's, entire lip structure and facial structure is unable to nurse or to, you know, grab onto a breast or even a bottle correctly because they have all these restrictions. So yeah, you have to be able to look at it. I I agree. You have to be able to look at it. You have to have a baseline. It's simply called outcome assessment. You know, we have a parameter that we look at. We do, like you said, an intervention or supportive care. And then at a certain period of time, we look again to see if that supportive care has changed the outcome. If it doesn't, then you may need to do something else. And that's just standard care 
I mean, that's kind of how you live your life, isn't right. it? Right. It's like 101. Like, yeah. this is absolutely what is supposed to be happening. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I go out to dinner in a restaurant, and if I eat the food and I get the bill, and I go, oh, that bill isn't worth what I just ate. I'm not coming back to this restaurant. That's simple outcome assessment. Yeah. You know, we yeah. do that every day in our lives. We do that every day in our lives. We do, right? Yeah, there's constant decision making that, that's happening. And and yeah, you're you're doing so much. You know, I, I would love for you because you're so skilled with you know, all the stuff that's going on cranially and mm-hmm. and in the mouth and that oral structure. What are those things that you see tongue tie related or not that are causing so many breastfeeding problems? Because sure. I think back to what we said about the primitive reflexes and things like that, like babies, human babies were mammals, right? They're meant to get their food, their source of sustenance from the mammary glands. You know, it's not some babies are meant to breastfeed and some aren't. Some moms are just cut out for it. Some aren't. No, like we're all designed to do it. And yes, there are other medical issues that can impede breastfeeding from this standpoint. Like what is, what is happening? Why is it so hard? So functionally, one of the common things we see is the palate. If the palate is too high and narrow, the palate is inside the mouth. So you put your finger inside a baby's mouth or an adult's mouth, the palate should be kind of U-shaped. And there's sutures in the palate where the bones attach because the palate is actually made up of four separate bones. So when we go and feel the palate, we want to see it U-shaped. If you see a palate that's V-shaped, which means very high and narrow, that's also very difficult for the baby to nurse well on because they can't seal. They can't make a seal with um, the breast and their tongue because the palate's too high and narrow. So they leave an air pocket. And what happens is when they leave that air pocket and they start to suck, they start to suck air. So they get colic type symptoms with that, or they can't get a good letdown. The other thing is that we see very often is a hypersensitive gag reflex. So there's a nerve called the vagus nerve, which comes out from the skull and goes down the side of the neck, but part of it feeds back into the cranium and lifts the soft palate. And if that nerve gets irritated, the soft palate will not lift as high. And so when the baby is nursing, they kind of choke a little bit. They can't, they, especially if there's a strong letdown, they'll choke. The other thing we see is if there's a hypersensitive gag reflex, as I said, the palate's made up of four bones. So what often happens is the baby's nursing very well the first couple of months. And then somewhere around the third month when their sucking reflex gets really strong and they can suck the nipple further back in, when they pull the nipple further back into the mouth, it hits against further back in the palate and that area is hypersensitive and it causes them to gag. Those would be the kind of babies that all of a sudden they start to nurse and they pull their head off, right? Or they make clicking noises or they start to get really irritable. And that again is because they're actually getting stronger. Their nursing capability or functionality is good, but the palate is not performing correctly or it's hypersensitive and that's calling them, causing them to basically gag or pull off the nipple. The other thing we see is an imbalance on one side of the palate as far as the bite strength or the sucking strength. So if one side of the palate is stronger than the other, they will then tend to want to nurse much more on one side than the other. So those are some of the main functional issues we see, you know, besides the lip and tongue tie, it is distortions in the palate, abnormal palate shape, or hypersensitivity in certain areas of the palate due to certain neurological issues that are occurring or growth and developmental patterns in the cranium. Oh, yes. So well put in. And I think that, you know, it's like a perfect storm of things around that three month timeframe, like you said, because so many parents, 
you know, they, you know, they know they've heard somewhere, you know, about milk supply regulation and it happens, you know, by that time frame, And so they right. go, oh, my baby's pulling off. They're fussy at the breast, you know, must be because I'm not making enough anymore. And then you hear the yeah. sad story of, oh, my milk just dried up at three months. Uh, yeah. Nope. That probably yeah. most one. And now it can also, you know, there can be the, the flip side of that is, you know, an unaddressed tongue tie. They never achieve um, great suction in the oral cavity. Exactly. And then, you know, when they're, when you're dependent on that ability of milk removal to maintain milk supply, it doesn't maintain it. So there's that, but so, you know, these palatal distortions that you mentioned, what can we do about that? Basically just comes to you, right? (laughs) Basically, uh, you know, I was, that's what I'm going to say. Yeah. I mean, chiropractors are trained in pediatric cranial adjusting. That's what we do. That's our thing. That's what we evaluate different than, you know, if you go to regular chiropractor, they'd always evaluate your cranium. So it's only people who specialize in, so chiropractic cranial adjusting is a separate skill set within the chiropractic profession. So there are people who do cranial adjusting on adults, but there are also the pediatric chiropractors almost always do cranial adjusting on the pediatric practice because the pediatric cranium is growing so fast and has such vast implications if it doesn't grow correctly. So yeah, those are the kind of people you want to see. I know there are other professions that do that. I know there are people who do cranial sacral therapy, um, but again, you always have to be careful when you're looking at different things. So if someone is taking a cranial sacral therapy seminar, they can call themselves a cranial sacral therapist. So you want to make yeah. sure when you're looking for somebody who's taking care of your baby, that they have a skill set that they care, care of pediatric patients. I say, I tell people one of the first things you can ask if you're unsure of them says, Oh yeah, I take care of kids. They say, well, what percentage of your practice is children? Oh, two percent. Yeah. Well, you don't take care of kids. You take care right. of a child once in a while. You know, it's like I used to do sports injuries when I started practicing. I was really into running and I did triathlon. So I did a lot of sports injuries. Um, and that was a big part of my practice in the beginning. Um, I don't do that much anymore just because it doesn't interest me. But if someone came to me and say, hi, I heard you do sports and, you know, injuries and I want to do this and retrain and blah, and give me this whole list of I would refer them out because it's not what I do anymore. You know, can I take care of you with a sports injury? Yeah, if you want to come in and get adjusted and you have a knee or a hip problem and that's what you consider a sports injury, great. But if you want a whole retraining program and all this other stuff, that's not what I do anymore. And it's the same thing with pediatrics. If I've taken care of one or two, you know, pediatric patients, that doesn't make me a pediatric chiropractor. So those are the kind of things parents need to look for. We have our website called Dr. Martin Rosen, drmartinrosen.com. And on that is a list of all the people who have taken our certification courses so that you can get a list. There's another chiropractic organization called the International Chiropractic Pediatric Association. They have a list of people who have taken their courses. There's also um, a, a group called the International Chiropractic Association, the ICA. They have pediatric programs. So there are people who have pediatric programs that run certification programs and that list of graduates who have graduated from their courses, and at least you know they have taken the time and effort to study the pediatric cranium, the pediatric spine, and have put in the extra effort. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I'll make sure to link those up in the show notes because okay. I definitely was, I had seen your pediatric referral directory. And, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I mean, you know, you've been teaching for 39 years. So you're not, right. you're not a spring chicken. And you can just tell by how well versed you are in all of this stuff, you know, how much experience and knowledge you have. And that's right. what's important, right? Is, is that if a family, you know, or, or their lactation consultant or someone recognizes the need, 
for, right. you know, chiropractic or, or there's some cranial issues, you've just got to go to the right person because it makes all the difference. It's kind of like if you suspect your baby has a tongue tie and you go see a lactation consultant that quote unquote, doesn't believe in tongue ties. Right. Exactly. Well, you're not going to get some great results. Right. And, and unfortunately, I don't think there's like really a tried and true trusted directory for those of us out there. Um, right. There's like maybe one I could kind of think of and I'll link that up, but you know, it's, it's tough. So having these resources and websites, because there's a lot I can do virtually to support people. And we do that yeah. on my practice, but what you do cannot really be done virtually. And, and we it don't needs have to be right. seen in person. Yeah. We <laughs> don't have a virtual way to do it. And, and, you know, the other pieces you have to understand, and I know you do, right? So, and I'm sure you're listening to, but this is an extremely intimate relationship. Someone is bringing yes. their newborn baby to you. You know, so you have to also connect with the practitioner. There is a different, a different, a much different space that we hold in our office when we're dealing with infants and babies. And matter of fact, so I've been in practice a long time. We have what you, I would call a waiting list practice. Like we don't take a lot of new patients, but I will guarantee you if someone calls my office and my wife who runs the front desk answers and it's a baby in distress or a, or a pregnant mom in distress, you will get in. But if you're some person with a low back pain or neck pain, you may have to wait three, four weeks to get in because that's, you know, but we understand that. So it's a very intimate relationship. And I remember what it was like having my babies and there was not a lot of people that I would trust to take care of them, babysit them even forget about, you know, actually doing a healthcare procedure on them. So, yeah, yeah, so that's that's an important. And, and I think when you when parents are looking around, they have to make sure that, yeah, they found somebody who's skilled, but also someone who they can connect to and feel comfortable to talk to about stuff. Because, you know, my, I mean, I've never breastfed. I don't know what it's like, but I can see the frust. I've watched my wife do it for many years, but I can see the frustration in some parents when they come in and they, you know, the process is not happening or the baby is not sleeping or, you know, we have, we all have expectations and you probably know now and having kids who are six and nine, that some of those expectations are not going to be met because your kids didn't have the same expectations. And so you have to be able to be flexible and change and you have to have someone there who can kind of guide you through that process. Mm, so yeah. true. So true. I know it, it takes a lot for us to, to trust our babies, especially newborns uh-huh. or very young babies with someone in someone's very capable hands. Right. So all of these things are, are so important for parents to consider, but I think the take home really is that, you know, there are people like you out there who really have invested a lot in being able to provide this kind of quality care to families. And, you know, it's just a matter of getting connected with those resources when you do need them, because there are options, right? Sometimes parents here, I've had patients even say it, right? They're like, okay, so my baby's got a tongue tie and it's causing these problems. And so like, that's it. I can't nurse. And I'm like, whoa, no, no, no. Hold on. We're only like halfway through the discussion. There's absolutely, this is treatable. It is fixable. And I think more families need to hear that. It's an important message. It's pervasive through healthcare. Sometimes, you know, people come, especially chiropractors, though it's not as prevalent now, but when I started practicing probably the first 20 years, at least chiropractors were the last hope. Like people would always come in after everything else. You know, they just, and I always hated hearing a walk, you know, I went to my doctor and he said, I'm just going to have to live with it, you know, or I went, you know, and they said, well, that's just the way it's going to be. And it's like, no, the difference is, is that some practitioners can deal with certain things and some practitioners can deal with other things. And just because your practitioner or your child or someone has told you, oh, that's the way it has to be, 
That doesn't mean that's the case. It literally means that they don't have the skill set or the knowledge base to deal with it. And that if you're a parent and you think something's wrong and you know that intuitively, trust your intuition and don't stop till you find somebody who at least can talk to you on the same level and deal with whatever issue you're dealing with. Because my experience is parents really, really do know best, mothers especially. They have a gut feeling when they know something's wrong and something's off. And I think that they should basically put that at the top of the heap when they're deciding what they want to do or deciding if something should be done. If they have that gut feeling, I'm pretty, my experience is that gut feeling is right. Yeah, I would, I would hundred percent agree with that. And, and I think you kind of spoke to a, a little bit of this last sort of point or question I, I wanted to bring up, which is that I've seen and, and heard from parents as well, especially doing a lot of telehealth and working with people okay. in different locations that, there's been some not so great chiropractors out there that have especially emerged um, during the pandemic that have maybe grown a platform and maybe over, I don't want to say even maybe, like they definitely over promise what they can Absolutely. achieve as chiropractors. And it's obviously a sales ploy and, and whatnot. And unfortunately, it's really done a lot of harm to the profession of chiropractic because there's people like you who are well-trained, who are professionals. And, you know, I've even seen it. I've posted about just even body work, which I don't even love that word, but it's kind of accessible to parents. And then, you know, immediately there's like this backlash comments of, you know, chiropractors are quacks and, you know, I'm like, well, some are, yeah, absolutely. Some are, you know, just like any profession. Right. And so, What's your response to that? Because I just, you know, want people to know, like, you're not all the same and there is benefit, but you got to go to the right one. Well, it's really simple. Have you ever heard of a bad lawyer? (laughs) I saw one on a major court case recently in the past month. Right. Have you ever heard anybody say they had a horrible dentist? You know, I mean, it's it's, it's exactly where people. And, and and I would say most healthcare professionals that, that go into the healthcare business don't go in it to do harm. Right. Right. They go in it to do the best they can do. And yes, some people get burnt out. I mean, there's all different kinds of aspects. So what I tell people is simply that one of the first questions I ask my patients, especially if they come in with a very challenged kid, like I've had, I get a lot of kids who have genetic issues. Um, and that when the first thing I ask the parent is, what is your expectation? Like, what do you expect to get out of chiropractic care? And if, you know, let's say I have a kid who can't walk, can't talk, and has genetic disease, um, that is basically means they're never going to be able to walk and talk again. If the parent says, well, I expect in the next three months, Johnny, to be walking and talking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that they understand that's not an, a valid expectation. So you should be clear with the practitioner what your expectation is. The practitioner, really, I always tell people, walk your talk. If you promise something, then you need to have the skill set to deliver it. So if you see a patient or a kid that is having a specific issue, then, and you promise to correct that issue, then you need to, number one, have the skill set to do that. And you should have the experience that that happens or often happens a lot. So I try and tell my people I teach is to basically, what I kind of said to you is, Help, your, help the parent create a baseline with the child 
a neurological baseline that you're both looking at and then say, look, every couple of weeks, which is what I do in my office, we're going to reevaluate and see if that baseline shifts. I said, and I understand your expectation is that Johnny's going to sleep, you know, better. I remember I had a mom, she came in, the mom and dad came in and they looked just so beat up and the baby did not sleep for more than an hour and a half. I think the child was two months old when we saw him, did not sleep for an hour and a half, whether it be day or night in a row. And both parents look right. And, and I just, to the child on my I just I adjust children on the second visit the first visit the exam I adjusted the child on the first visit and the mom came in and she had tears and she goes she slept 12 hours and I said that's awesome but I want you to understand don't expect that to happen from now on <laughs> I was like catch so, up sleep right <laughs> yeah I said that's not gonna your child's not you're not gonna put your child down at seven at night and it's gonna wake up at seven in the morning but bottom line is it changed so right you really have to monitor your expectations whether it be I take care of a lot of kids with reflux and parents go, I want to get them off the drugs. And I'm like, I do too, but we have to go, you know, step by step. So you have to keep realistic expectations and you have to have baselines. I even patients, if you come into my office, let's say you came into my office after your car accident and you had severe neck pain and pain radiating down your arm. I would say to you, look, we're going to take a six week protocol here. And after six weeks, I'm going to do a reevaluation. I want to see if what's happening to you is changing in a positive way. If it is, then we can stay the course. If it's not, then what I'm doing is not going to help you. So what we do with parents with babies is I check them depending on what their particular issue is in the first couple of months, every two to three weeks, we do what we call progress evaluations to see number one, because I may be seeing objective changes that are not translating subjectively in patient. We want to basically, both of us want to be on the same page. So if you brought your child in because they had colic and I'm seeing all kinds of changes and the colic's not going away, then we can either reevaluate our relationship or maybe think about doing something else. So if you, if you go to a practitioner, you should have your expectations, let the practitioner know that. And if they say, great, then they need to have not only the skill set, but parameters to follow that baseline so that you can see if there are changes happening so that you both can have conversations periodically to see if those changes are occurring. Oh, oh my gosh. That is the most, just so beneficial to to hear you say that great advice for parents, because this is the case with any kind of practitioner, you know, not just a chiropractor. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of people will say, well, you know, uh, you know, can you get all this done in one appointment? And I'm like, no, No. because how do I even know? Let's say it's a minor issue. Right. And I can, I can give you the direction to correct it in that first appointment. Right. Well, how are we assessing whether or not that works? Because right. you're not, you know, nursing is this thing that happens multiple times a day, every right. day. We've got to make sure and also maintenance, right? Like right. you experience a shift like the 12 hour baby sleeping, you know, and like, yeah, exactly. that would be a great testimonial if you just put that out there and said, I get babies to sleep 12 hours through the night. People do that. And you're right. And that's where the internet becomes deadly. Yep. Because it's this loud all, vocal minority that takes okay. advantage with stuff like that. Yep. So we, we all have miracle cases. I could tell you miracle cases that happen in my office. And if I put them on the internet, you know, that would be great. And you know, the problem with the internet is it's often quant quantity, not quality. I remember talking to, to a, a young practitioner and he was getting a hundred new patients a month from the, from his marketing. And I'm like, I don't even know how you deal with 100 new patients a month. How do you have the time? And but, you know, three quarters of them never came back or they were blown out the door. And so it's really about 
the quality, and you really need to be careful, right? When you see stuff on the internet, there are miracles that happen. I've had kids that literally couldn't walk and talk that walked and talk. I've had kids who had seizures that the seizures don't occur anymore. I've had dozens and dozens of kids who've had reflux or colic are no longer on their medications. I've had kids who flagellate that their head is resolved and normalized without, you know, helmets. I mean, I could go on and on and on for 40 years, but I don't advertise <laughs> that because that's not really what we're about. Right. It's not, you know, you, it's not about the miracles. It's about the day-to-day grind. You know, it's like, if you have, I mean, there are kids, we have Mozart's and we have painter Monet's and people who are just brilliant, brilliant, but that doesn't happen every day. Yeah. doesn't happen every day. So the idea behind this is that you need to really have rational expectations and goals and ways to monitor if those are occurring. And so I've had patients who's, Maybe their symptom didn't go away, but they stayed under care because they saw other changes in care. They saw behavior. Let's say I had a kid who had, let's say, ear infections. And though that's very common with chiropractors and it almost always helps. And occasionally, sometimes there's an abnormal eustachian tube or something and the kid still gets the ear infection. But what the parent has noticed is, wow, Johnny's behavior is much better. He sleeps much better. Better. He's much calmer. He's much happier. So I'm going to stay under care, even though my initial reason for coming to you was because he had an ear infection. You know, so we, the conversation has to stay open and the parameters have to be objective on your end, even though they're going to be subjective on the parents end, which they should be because that's what they're they're about. Yeah. Oh, gosh. No, that's that's such an excellent explanation. And, you know, couldn't agree more with everything you've said. And I just think the work that you're doing is wonderful. And I love that you're out there educating other practitioners on how to do these things that you've spent so much time, you know, refining and and perfecting and whatnot. And um, so, you know, where, where can people find you if they're interested um, in seeing you and they happen to live where you do. And then also, you know, I'll post that directory of your previous students as well. And then, you know, kind of another thing too, if you're doing training, I do have a fair amount of professionals that listen to the podcast. So how can they access you for training? Sure. So number one, if you're a lay person, I want to find either more about us or maybe even get a referral from us, someone in your area. My office website is Wellesley, W-E-L-L-E-S-L-E-Y, Cairo, C-H-I-R-O.com. That's basically my office website. If you're a professional, there's two places you can get in contact with me. If you're interested in learning from us or buying some of our books, um, then you can go to peakpotentialprogram.com, P-E-A-K, potential, P-O-T-E-N-T-I-A-L, program.com. Or if you're a doctor and want to find out about our courses or a practitioner, you can also go to drmartinrosen.com and that's drmartinrosen.com. So those are our three main websites. Um, They also have our book. If you're interested in the book as a lay person or for your office to explain what we just talked about on this podcast, you can go to itsallintheheadbook.com and get our book there. And the last thing, if you want to just email us, it's drmartinrosen at gmail.com and the doctor's dr, martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, rosen at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for, um, you know, putting yourself out there and being accessible for the people that need you. And just having this conversation today, it's so important. And I can just tell that you have this incredible passion for, giving families and babies the best start in life. So it's been an absolute pleasure. I thank you so much, Dr. Rosen. 
Oh, thank you so much. It was great talking with you. And I think your passion matches mine, maybe with a little more energy because you have a few years to catch up to me. (laughs) But no, I think it's awesome that you're doing what you're doing and how expansive you are in your in your vision. It's really great to see. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. know most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset. In fact, studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations, where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras, and you can get started right now.